Heavenly Father, we, we come to you because we, by the very act of prayer, we confess our need for you. Father, many of us have attempted to run our own lives, to be our own decision makers, to, to do what we feel like is best for us. And yet our best laid plans and our best of intentions have continually left us lacking. It's because we haven't chosen your best. We haven't fully understood that apart from you that we can literally do nothing. That our lives will never have meaning. They'll never amount to anything apart from you. And so, Father, this morning as we gather together in this building, I pray that you would show us wondrous truths from your word. I pray for those that don't know you as Lord and Savior. They may know about you. They, they may even fear you. They, even, they may even say that they love you, but yet they are like Lydia. They, they still need their heart opened to receive the gospel, to really see what Christianity is all about. And then for those of us that sit in this room that have been a Christian maybe for days or or weeks, or some of us, we've been Christians for decades, we desperately need to see wondrous truths from your word. Because we have our own set of problems and our own set of issues And some that we have been struggling with for many years. And yet, still no victory. And so I pray this morning that through the study of your word, that something maybe we've heard a hundred times would land on us like never before. Maybe some truth that we have long forgotten about will find its way back to us this morning. And it will enable us to continue to walk with You in a manner that's worthy of our calling. Father, we're just asking You to do what only You can do. We declare our our need, and we ask that You would come and meet that need. In Christ's name, Amen. Alright, if you will grab your Bibles. Just go ahead and turn to Romans 12. Um, in the 1970s, 1977 to be exact, the world became a different place. And for some of you, you, you don't even know what 1977 looked like. You, you didn't, you know, some, for some of y'all, you don't know what 87 or 97 looked like. It's amazing now to, to think that there are people that, um, you know, I mean, they're 21 years old now that don't even know what the 1990s were like. So uh, you start thinking about that too much, you feel old very quickly. But in 1977, a guy named George Lucas introduced us to the greatest movie franchise series in history. Hands down. I mean, if y'all want to go out and fight in the parking lot, we will, but I'm telling you, Star Wars is the greatest movie franchise that has ever been created. 
And George Lucas started this journey in the middle of the book. That's what's, that's what's kind of crazy about it, because the very first Star Wars is actually the fourth Star Wars. And then the second one was the fifth, and the third one was the sixth. And it wasn't until we saw the fourth one that we saw the first one. And there's been many more since. Well, what I want to do today is I, I kind of want to pull, pull a George Lucas on you. We, have, we, we started a sermon series in Romans chapter 12, which is not in the middle of the book. It is actually the last quarter of the book, which is typically not the way that I preach. We, we usually start chapter 1 so we can follow the progression of the writer and the story, and it just helps it to make more sense. It keeps me from preaching what I like to preach and you know gives us a full, robust teaching of God's Word. Um, and, and so we, we've been journeying through this 12th chapter. We, we took a break two weeks before the election. We, we, we jumped ahead into chapter 13 because it dealt with Christians and how we are to respond to those in governmental authority. And, and then we came back and we picked back up in uh, verses 9, which really moves into this section of chapter 12 that talks about if you want to know what a Christian should look like and how a Christian should act, then here it goes. Verses 9 through 21 is almost like, you know, uh, you would almost think that Paul is tweeting at you. If you don't know what tweeting is, it's this social media phenomenon where you get 140 characters to send a message out. Well, Paul gets in this kind of staccato, rapid-fire progression of... Uh, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, uh, and, and uh, let love be with brotherly affection. And, and it's just kind of rapid fire. It's almost like he's somewhat schizophrenic because he, he's just kind of bouncing from... Or it's almost like whatever he comes to his mind, that's what he's writing down. You know, it's like he's trying to pull up the catalog of his mind to everything he wants the Romans to know that this is what Christianity in its reality should look like in the world. And so we've been taking that journey, and, and, and we've said that everything that Paul is telling us to do can only be done by those who've experienced what Paul says is necessary in chapter 12, verse 1. And that is, if you look at that verse in chapter 12, verse 1, it says, therefore, by the mercies of God, right? So the mercies of God become this, they become the power source for verses 9 through 21. And, and really, it becomes the power source for everything that Paul teaches all the way through the end of chapter 16. But he says, uh, Therefore, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Right? So what are we to do? We are to be uh, uh, dead, yet, yet alive. Dead to what? Dead to our own selfish desires. Dead to the way we want to live life. So what do we do? We crawl up on God's altar. We place ourselves there. And we say, God, whatever you want to do with me, I'm yours. But we said we had a problem, right? Because <laughs> we're still living. And we'll crawl off that altar. Right? Anybody in here crawled off that altar? <laughs> How many of us? <laughs> Some of us might be off the altar right now. So it, it, it's, a, it's a daily, it's an ongoing 
almost maybe by moment by moment, either keeping ourselves on the altar or taking ourselves back to that altar. So he says, be a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, for this is your reasonable service. Or as Paul says, this is the logical conclusion of someone that's experienced the mercies of God. And then he gives us a little tidbit before he actually moves into what this life of Christianity fleshed out looks like. He tells us, he says, uh, don't be conformed to the pattern of this world. Literally, it means do not be molded into the world's way of thinking. Okay? Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Don't be conformed, but be transformed. And where does transformation ultimately begin? It begins in our mind. It begins between our ears. It begins in our head. Why? Because this is the first place that information comes to. Before information ever gets to your heart, it has to come into your mind. And so Paul says if we're not going to be conformed and be transformed, this is the word metamorphosis, and if you've had 8th grade science, you know in in 8th grade science... One of the things that they teach you is they teach you about, the, or at least they did when I was in school. And, and I keep forgetting, that's a, long, a lot of stuff's changed since I was in school. Like, y'all do weird math today. I'm not sure what that's all about, but that's weird. Math shouldn't be done that way. It should be done the way that it's always been done, but they've come up with this, and they've got a name for it. It slips my mind. What's the name of it, teach? Common Core Math. That is some weird, that is a, to me, that is a weird way to do mathematics. But nonetheless, um, you know, so I don't know if they still teach this in eighth grade, but in eighth grade, I learned about metamorphosis. I learned that butter, that uh, uh, worms, caterpillars, end up forming a crystallis around their body. They attach themselves to a plant. They form this crystallis around their body. And what begins to happen is, is that in, while they're inside that crystallis, they begin to change. They begin to go through a process called metamorphosis. And something interesting about that is that, you know, if you go up to a butterfly that's in its cocoon and you cut it open, it will die. It, it cannot survive. Why? Because... It must go through the full process of metamorphosis in order to develop. And even, they say in the final stages, as the wings have developed inside that crystallis, one of the ways the butterfly gets out is its wings begin to push against the crystallis, which develops its strength. And that way, when it comes out, the wings are strong enough to fly. That's why if you cut it out too early, it dies. It can't fly. It can't be what it's created to be, a butterfly. And so Paul says we go through this process called metamorphosis. Where we're being changed. We're being being taken from a worm to a butterfly. We're taken from something that's real ugly to something that's real beautiful. But it's a process. It's a process. And so this morning what I wanted to do is, you know, we have been reading... Uh, you know, for weeks now, all of this stuff that this is what Christianity looks like. And it can, to me, it can be a little little overwhelming. Like last week was a big pill to swallow. Right? Anybody really thought last week was, I mean, those are some pretty tough words. Do good to those who do evil to you. Bless and do not curse. I mean, not just, you know... Uh, you know, uh, 
not just speak well about them out loud, but really, from your heart, mean the words that you're saying about them. Look, some of us can, we're good enough that we can speak well of other people and, and not mean it. Why? Because we, we just don't want to look like a jerk. You know, we just don't want people to think that we're, you know, we're mean and ugly people. So, so a lot of times, even if we don't want to, we'll speak well about people, but we don't really mean it. We don't really want that, to, that, that good to happen to them. But, but Paul says, and Jesus says, that when he says, bless those who persecute you, he literally means, I want you to speak well of them and truly desire for what you say to happen to them. That's tough. So, like, that's a struggle. And I look back at all, I look back at, you know, the verses that we've gone through, nine, uh, nine through uh, 13 or 14, and I'm thinking, Lord, you're asking a lot. I mean, you really are. I mean, it's like, this Christian thing is not easy. I mean, it's not near as easy as some people think it is. And so what I thought I would do this morning is I'd do my own George Lucas prequel. We would stop in the middle of Romans and, and, and we would backtrack a little bit back, to the, back into the mercies of God. And listen, I'm just going to be honest with you. This sermon's not for you this morning. This, I'm going to preach to me. And you just are in the room. Because I need what I'm about to say and I've been preaching it to myself all week. Why? Because... Unless, unless I get this foundation under my feet, unless I, unless I sink my roots deep into the soil that we're going to look at this morning, I will never, ever, ever live in any degree, never live out to any, any degree the teachings of the, of, uh, that we've read so far. And neither will you. Neither will you. All right. So we're 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 gonna we're gonna do a prequel. This is what we need to hear before we hear what we've already heard. Y'all with me? Everybody with me? Okay. Good. In October 2011, Gordon 94 and Norma 90. Their last name is Jaeger. They had been married 72 years. I can't even imagine. I hope I live to be 72, but I mean, that just seems so far away. 72 years married to the same person. They were involved in a catastrophic automobile accident in Iowa. They were taken to the hospital where they were put in the same room together. And while in that same room, Norma and Gordon held hands. Can you picture this in your mind? While they were holding hands, Gordon died. He drew his last breath. Matter of fact, he drew his last breath according to his death certificate, at 3.38 p.m. in the afternoon. The nurse found something really interesting. She went in and 
Gordon was dead. But the monitor that showed a heartbeat was still showing a heartbeat. No flat line, still a heart rhythm. No breath, no pulse, but a heartbeat. What's going on? The summation from the medical staff there at the hospital was simply this. Is that though Norma, uh, no, though Gordon had died, the piece of machinery that said that registered, registered his heartbeat was not registering his heartbeat, but Norma's, who was holding his hand. He was dead, yet he appeared to be alive. The local news station did an interview with their son, Dennis. And this is what Dennis said. The monitor, that, that the monitor was beeping was because they were holding hands and Norma's heartbeat is going through them. That's what the nurse told Dennis, Gordon, and Norma's son. Dennis said to the local news station, Dad's heart had stopped, but Mom's had kept it beating. You say, Brother Jason, why why do you tell that story? How does that story fit with kind of where you started this morning? You know, I, I really believe that Gordon and Norma are a perfect illustration to help us to understand what salvation is really like. You see, our hearts were dead, no life, no rhythm, no rhythm of life showing on the EKG. We were dead. No hope of resuscitation, no paddles to bring us back to life. We were hopeless. And then... A nail-pierced hand reached out and it took our dead, lifeless hand and the heartbeat of the God of the universe began beating in our heart. It began registering on our spiritual EKG. Paul says it this way, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. And you were dead in trespasses and sin, which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is at now work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, Because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sin, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with Him and seated with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. 
For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no man should boast. Do you see what happened when you and I were dead? God reached down and brought life into our dead bodies. And if you don't know Christ this morning as your Savior, then you too are dead. And there's, no, there's nothing that you can do to bring life to yourself. The only way that you're going to ha- experience life, spiritual life, sa- what we call salvation, is that God Himself reaches down to where you are in your deadness and He touches you and brings life to you. Or he does like he did to Lazarus when Lazarus had been four days in the grave and the Lord stood at the tomb of Lazarus and he said, Lazarus, come forth. We have story after story where uh, people who were unable to do anything for themselves have an encounter with the living God and then all of a sudden those who were incapacitated to do anything for themselves are brought to life or made new. Why? Because the God of the universe says that I seek to save those who are lost. And God this very morning is here in this church and, and even uh, through the, uh, the advent of the, of the internet and people are watching this, God is seeking people today to save. He is seeking people to show Himself to. Why? Because He's all about raising dead people to life. God doesn't say, clean yourself up, get yourself together, quit sinning, start doing right, and I'll bring life to you. No, He says, while you are sinning and dead and evil and wicked and wretched and disobedient and all the things that you are, guess what? I can save you. I will save you. And I'm here to save you right now. And some of us, if not many of us in this room, have experienced that saving act of love. We have been born again. We have been saved. We have been redeemed. Whatever, whatever Christian word that you want to use, we've had that experience this morning. And you see, it is this experience of salvation that leads Paul to this final verse of Ephesians chapter 2. This act of love creates a certain type of person for a specific purpose. Look at what he says, for we are his workmanship. That is literally in the Greek where we get our word poem. We are God's poem. God is writing poetry about our life. Uh, We are his poem. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk into them. So look at look real closely at what that says. Number one, it says it creates a certain type of person. It creates a Christian. Do you see that? Created in what? Christ Jesus. Okay? So we are, in salvation, we are created in Christ Jesus. We are created to reflect and become like Christ. For what? For the purpose of what? Good works. And the question you should ask is, what are these good works that God has crea- you know, created me to do? Well, if you look in the verse, it says that these good works were what? Two, two statements. 
prepared beforehand, or, yeah, prepared beforehand, and that we should what? Walk in them. So these good works, they're not a mystery. There's something that he has prepared beforehand, and it's something that we should walk in. So let me give you two verses to help you to understand what these good works are. Verse number one is Colossians chapter two, verse six. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him. I just simply believe that when Paul says that we should walk in them, these good works, that what it is, it's a lifestyle. God is calling us to walk in a lifestyle, a lifestyle that we have coined as Christian and that we don't have time to go through this morning, but we have been walking through this lifestyle in Romans 12. It's clearly spelled out what our lifestyle should look like. So if, if, so here's the thing. If God saves us, He is saving us with a purpose. And that purpose is to bring us in to His kingdom, to make us His child, so that we can begin to reflect who God is here on earth. Look at, the, look at the other phrase, prepared beforehand. These works, we're supposed to walk in them, okay? As you receive Christ the Lord, so walk in Him. But then it says these works were pre- prepared beforehand. Paul shows us in Romans 8, 29, what good, what good works have been prepared beforehand. So look at this verse. For those whom He foreknew, He also what? Predestined. Come on, y'all get involved this morning. Predestined. Okay? Right there with... says that he's planned these works beforehand. Same word, predestined. Predestined what? What did he predestine? To be conformed to the image of his Son. He predestined our conformity to the image of his Son. So this good work that we walk in, in this Christian life, is to be conformed to the image of His Son. When people think about works, all people, get to, all people start thinking about is mission work, serving the poor, uh, feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, uh, ministering to those in prison. And listen, and all of those, are they, they, they are in a sense a work of the Christian faith, but that is not the work primarily that we're called to. The work that we're called to, that we've been predestined to, is to be conformed into the image of Christ. And listen to me. When you start conforming your life into the image of Christ, what follows that are these works that I've already mentioned. The problem is we try to get involved in these quote-unquote works without being involved in the right work, which is the work of being conformed in the image of Christ. Here's what we're ultimately trying to do. We're trying to do the work of Christ without Christ. It is amazing how the Christian church has been able to do all that's done without Jesus. The vast majority of what's... Listen... The vast majority of what's happening in most churches today is happening without the aid of Christ. Without the work of the Holy Spirit. Slick marketing, great, pre, uh, great, uh, great 
uh, presentations or speeches or lectures or talks, uh, you know, slick music and everything else that goes into it, all set up to, to get to some kind of man, manipulated end is work without the Holy Spirit. Work without Christ. And here the Bible says that our work is to be transformed into God's image. And when we're transformed into God's image, guess what? You don't have to beg people to do missions. You don't have to beg people to help feed the the hungry. You don't have to beg people to help clothe the naked. You don't have to beg people to go down to the prison and do prison ministry. You don't have to beg people to do anything that they should be doing. Why? Because they are becoming the person that does that. But you, you, listen, we're expecting the people to, to do that before, they're, before they ever become that. You tracking? You, you see where we're going? You see how we got the cart before the, her, the horse? It's the chicken and the egg. Which one came first? Well, we know in Christianity which came first. Jesus Christ is far more concerned about you being conformed to His image than you ever going on a mission trip. But guess what? If you're being conformed to the image of Christ, you'll knock the door down to go on a mission trip. All right. Conformity to the image of the Son is often called sanctification. Okay, big word. This means growth in Christ-likeness, or some people just call it holiness, becoming more holy. Leviticus 11.44 says this, "For For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy as I am holy. That's a command. This call to be holy is the definition of what, it, of what it means to be sanctified or sanctification. This is the process that takes place during phase two of your salvation. Now you Eureka people know, right? Three phases to salvation, right? Phase one, we're saved from the penalty of sin. That's called justification. Phase two, we are saved from the Power of sin, sanctification. Phase three, we are being, we are, we will be saved. So we are being saved from the power of sin. We will be saved from the presence of sin, glorification. Salvation is just not prayer, prayer, and you're in, and that's it. No, that's 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 entry level. That's how we get into the family of God. That's phase one. But there's two more phases to go. And we're in phase two of salvation. We are being saved from the power of sin. Sanctify is a noun. It just describes our state of being. Listen, you, okay, you are perfect. If you're a Christian, you're perfect right now. You're perfect. In God's eyes, you're perfect. It's your position. It is what... It is that which has been declared about us. God declares us to be as perfect. Why? Because Jesus was perfect. We now have His righteousness, therefore we are perfect. This call to be holy is more than attainable 
it is assured. You see, we, we've been we've been declared to be holy, but but our but we're still not holy in our life. So we have this position before God of holiness, but we have a practice that's still not completely holy. Now, now follow me for a second. Now, some of y'all have heard this, and I'm, I'm adding to something I've been teaching for years. Okay, so you, you don't don't let the familiarity of what I'm saying, you know, kind of dull your hearing. Because if you do, you're going to miss something that you really need to hear concerning this teaching. So look at Romans eight twenty nine. It's going to come up on the screen. Romans eight twenty nine. Again, we are predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. All right. That's what has already been determined. If God has predestined something, nothing can change what has already been predestined to happen. So, if you are a Christian, and you claim to be a Christian, then your growth, into Christ's likeness or holiness or whatever word you want to use is assured. So all of this stuff we've been reading in Romans that we say, whoo, that's difficult, boy, God's asking a lot. I mean, being a, tough, being a Christian's really tough. I don't even know if I can get there or do that. Listen, you can and you will. Why? Because God has already said that this is going to happen. So you cannot have somebody that claims to be a Christian and is not in the process of becoming Christ-like because that is to deny the very claim that God has already made about you, which is you are mine, you are perfect, therefore you will be perfect. And we're about to go through the process of getting you to that perfection. Now, let, let, let me put on the brakes for a second. Here's what I'm not saying. There are people that have got too much holiness in their religion. There are some parts of Christianity that says that you can quit sinning. Nope. Nope. That's not achievable. Not in this life. That's too much. That, that's overstating holiness. But then there's other people who understate holiness. They don't talk about it near enough. And, and, and it's just like we give out license to people. Go sin, go sin, go sin, go sin. And, and look, and holiness goes a lot, a lot further than that. First John 3, 2 says this, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be like has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. So what is He saying there? He is telling us that this, this ultimate perfection that God is predestined for us to ultimately experience will not happen till we see Jesus. The, the, full, the, the full reality of that. Does that mean, again, does that mean we just go on sinning? Paul says, absolutely not. So let, let me use an analogy that even our small kids can, can latch on to this morning. Okay? 
Beauty and the Beast. That's like my, probably my favorite illustration to use in spiritual matters. Um, the process of sanctification, the process of holiness, is much like what we see in Beauty and the Beast, where Baal kisses the beast just in the nick of time before the final petal falls off the rose. And if you've seen, whether you've seen the, you know, the, the old version of Beauty and the Beast or you've seen the most recent presentation of Beauty and the Beast, what you see is the moment that the kiss happens, Disney begins to spin its magic, right? And all of a sudden, you, 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 don't, you don't see the beast anymore. You see you know, uh, stars going around him or this kind of like whirlwind going around him. And you know that something is happening inside of that. And then all of a sudden, as only Disney can do, in a matter of seconds, the beast goes from the beast to the handsome prince. Well, listen, sanctification is where God takes beast like us, brings us, kisses us with the kiss of salvation, and then we go through this period called the remainder of our Christian existence where we're in this whirlwind and God is doing His Disney magic on our life. He is working out that salvation. He is taking us more and more away from sinfulness into holiness. And then one day, see, God doesn't do it like Disney does it. He doesn't do it in a matter of seconds. He does it in a lifetime. And then one day, God says, I'm done. And when He says, I'm done, you're done. Which means you're done here so that you can be perfect even as He is perfect. You see, ultimately what salvation is, and I don't know maybe if you've ever thought about this, salvation is about God making us over time into the image of Christ, which in essence... What God is doing is He is restoring to us our humanity. Anybody, is everybody in here familiar with the word inhumane? Somebody does something, you said, that's inhumane. Listen, everything is inhumane. Why? Because we are all people who have, who have experienced the fall. We, we are byproducts of Adam and Eve's sin. And so we're all broken. We are all inhumane people. And, and ultimately what God is doing in salvation is just like in Beauty and the Beast where they sing the song, human again, human again. And it's all about these little pots and pans and, and shiffer robes and, 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 and different people, candlesticks and clocks being made back into humans. Well, guess what? That's what God is doing to us. He is, through the process of sanctification, taking us out of our inhumaneness into true humanity. And you say, I don't believe that. I ain't never heard that before in church. Okay, I got some Bible verses. 1 Corinthians 15, read at funerals, but nobody ever really catches on to what it's all about. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, that's talking about death, but we shall all be... Y'all tracking? Watch the next verse. In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet sound, you say, oh, rapture. We're talking about the rapture. No, we're not talking about the rapture. More than that. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. Keep going, brother. For this perishable, this inhumane, this body tainted by sin must put on the imperishable. 
Look, this body, yeah, it's going to eventually turn to dust, but God, through some kind of... Only what He can do, He's going to reconstruct this body that I've got right now, and this is the body I'm taking into heaven, but I'm going to take in a model that's without defect. I'm going to take in a model that can never die again. That's why it says, puts on the imperishable, and the mortal shall put on immortality. What's going to happen? This body is going to be like God had intended this body to be always, and that is perfect without defect, without any kind of blemish or spot or sin or anything. And when, God, and when we are in the process of sanctification, we are already in this process where God is changing us. He is changing us. Into the image of His dear Son. That's what He wants for us more than He wants anything else. He wants you and I to look like Christ. Calvin Gardner Taylor, the, the great uh, uh, preacher of a generation ago, <laughs> I love what he said. I was listening to an old sermon of his. <clears throat> he was preaching out of... 1 John 3, 2, that I just read to you. And this is what he said about that passage. He said, look, we're gonna, when we get to heaven and we see Jesus, we're going we're gonna to be so much like Jesus that the angels in heaven are going to look around and say, now which one of them is Jesus? See, that's part of your problem. I mean, that, that, that's, that's where you shout. That's where, you, that's where you say, oh Lord, that's how far you're going? Absolutely. You see, our Christianity is not too big. It is far too small. Our comprehension of what God wants to do is not too big. It is far too small. We have created a God that we can wrap our arms around and not a God who will blow our minds away. God the Father gave up His Son so that you and I can look like His Son, small s, not capital S. And He is determined to get you there. And He's more determined to get you there than you are to get there. Sanctify is also a verb. It's our state of being. It's where God bends us away from sinfulness to sinning less. You see, that's what's happening right now. You are bent. Look, you can't do nothing but sin. If you're, if you're not a Christian, that's all you can do is sin. Everything you do is sin. Even the good stuff you do is sin. Because it's tainted with sinfulness. Because you do that because you want people to think well of you and you want people to praise you and, and, and you don't want to get in trouble with mom and dad and <clears throat> you want the coach to like you. Uh, you don't really want to do that drill, but you do that drill anyway because you, you, you want to get play in time. So our, our motives are always bent inward. 
Listen, you know what? You know what happens when you become a Christian? God starts taking that inward bent that everything's about me, and he starts taking that bend, and he bends it back this way until it's Godward. Until it's Godward. It's a slow bend. It's a painful bend. It doesn't feel good. It hurts. But he is bending you and I away from self, away from sin, and he is bending us back towards Christ-likeness, to being Godward. We're almost done. I got just another verse or two to share with you. Second Peter uh, chapter three says this. Second Peter chapter one, excuse me. Beginning of verse three says, "His divine power has been has granted to us all things pertaining to life and godliness." Listen, you have everything that you need in order to get to where God is taking you. Through the knowledge of Him who called us to His glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. Having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are, watch, increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Woo! (laughs) Did, Did you catch what he's saying? He's like, look, if this ain't who you're becoming... It's not because you don't have what you need. It's that you're so nearsighted that you can't see that it's right there in front of you. So let me quote C.S. Lewis from last week. You are in the street making mud pies when God said there's a vacation at the beach. We've been given everything that's needed for life and godliness. Though we have been given a new heart and a new spirit, we still possess the remnants of our fallen nature. And that nature given to us at birth by our first parents and its remnants. And it's this remnants that causes conflict. Sin has bent our desires in the wrong direction. They have bent, uh, they have bent us inward, not upward. And our Father gives us a new heart and gives us the Holy Spirit to encourage and empower us towards holiness. You know why you sin, right? In closing. Everybody know why you sin this morning? You say, well, I'm a sinner. That's why I sin. You're right. That's why you sin, because you're a sinner. But you're a sinner means that your desires are bent inward, not upward. Listen, you're, the desires that we talk about that are so bad, are, they are not bad desires. Sin has made them bad. Sin has jacked everything up. Sin has made sin has taken every all the desires that God has given us that should that should be directed towards Him and has turned it onto ourselves. So I'm going to give you some help this morning. How do how do we fix these desires? How do we fix our desires? 
James says that we are tempted when we are lured away by our own desires, our own uh, lust. Our God has given us desires, and they are godly desires that, that sin has corrupted, and God is in the process of changing that. How does He do that? We have taught over the years that transformation comes not from doing, but dwelling. You can't get more busy in the work of God and be transformed. The way you get transformed is you do more dwelling in the presence of God than you do, than, than you do working for God. Beholding changes our behavior. Beholding bends us upwards. Beholding God's beauty bends us towards Christ's likeness. Psalm 27.4 says, One thing that I have asked of the Lord, that I will seek after Him, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon, look, the beauty of the Lord and inquire in His temples. So here's some help. Our desires will not be bent by willpower, but by the Word. Psalm 118. Write these verses. You might want to write these. These are the verses of help this morning. Psalm 119, 18 says, Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things from your law. You can't willpower your way into Christ's likeness. Only the Word has the power for Christ's likeness. Your desires will not be bent by trying harder, but by treasuring more. Your desires will not be bent by trying harder, but by treasuring more. Psalm 119.11, I've stored up your word in my heart, or treasured your word in my heart, that I might not sin against you. They're not, your desires are not going to be bent by more duty, but by more delighting. Psalm 119, 14 through 16, In the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statues. I will not forget your word. They will not be bent. Desires will not be bent by your strength, but by your supplication, by your prayer. Listen to this prayer in Psalm 119, 36 and 37. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give life in your ways. I want to I say to you this morning, do not be discouraged. God is at work. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 and 13 says, Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now not only in my presence but much more in my absence. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But listen, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. You know what that verse is saying? Work out what God has worked in. Work out what God has worked in. How do you do that? MDO. That's how you do it. Meditate. Delight. Obey. If you'll meditate on His Word, you'll eventually start delighting in His Word. When you start delighting in His Word, you'll start obeying His Word. Sounds like a pretty simple equation, right? Meditate on His Word until you start delighting in His Word. And then once you start delighting in His Word, obedience just kicks in. Why? Because you are working out what He has worked in.
Can I read something that I wrote to myself this morning? And then, and then we're going to pray. Or David, get ready to come and lead us in a final song. This is what I wrote to myself this morning. So I'm going to let you peek into my journal, my private journal. Not all of it, just the stuff I'd like for you to see. Stuff I'm willing for you to share. Discouraged Christian. That's how I often talk to myself. Because I can get pretty downcast pretty easy. Discouraged Christian. Encourage yourself with these two thoughts. He has predestined your sanctification. He is working out His will to bring you to total sanctification. And He prayed and is praying for its completion. In John 17, Jesus' final prayer that, he rec- that was recorded in Scripture, Jesus said this, Sanctify them, He's praying to the Father, in the truth, your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, watch what he does. I consecrate. It's the language of holiness. That they also may be sanctified in the truth. I fall. I fail. I, th- I thought I would be much further along in my Christian experience than what I am right now at this moment in my life. And if I take a hard enough look at my life, I can get, I can get really discouraged. Almost to the point where I'm paralyzed from, from doing anything spiritually. And maybe that's where you are this morning. Maybe, maybe you've had a, you know, maybe the last whatever in your life has been Pretty rough. A lot of, lot of disobedience. A lot of, lot of failing in your Christian faith. And, and maybe you just feel like you know, the Lord is just about done with you. He's, he's about ready just to wipe His hands clean of you. He's like, you know what? I don't know how many times you're going to do that sin. Listen, the concern is ultimately... Not how many times you have to come to God in repentance. The concern is, do you come to God in repentance at all? You see, you are a Christian because you repent. People who aren't Christians don't repent. But then in your repenting, you cannot become fatalistic. In your repenting, you have to remind yourself, guess what? I may not feel like he's at work, and it may not look to the outside world that he's at work, but the Bible says, he that began a good work in me will what? Complete it. He has worked something in me, and guess what? It's going to get worked out of me. He says that he's predestined me to the end. So there's no way He's given up on me. There's no way He's washed His hands of me. There's no way He's kicked me to the curb or put me out on the street. I am His, and He is mine. We are in a covenant relationship that cannot be broken.
And if that's true, my friend, then this morning what you and I need to do is get up out of where we are and begin to meditate on who He is until our hearts are delighted in Him and so that we can obey and obey from the heart. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we sing this final song this morning, and at least as we close our time together as the family of God on this Sunday, if there's people amongst us are watching that, they're not Christians. As a matter of fact, whatever happened, whenever it happened, ever how long ago it happened, there's not been one day of their life that's been any different than the day before they got saved. And so therefore, they, they don't know you. They may know about you, but they don't know you. And I pray in these moments ahead, as we sing this song, that you would just speak very powerfully to them and awaken them, as I said at the beginning, like you did Lydia, and that they would receive you, that they would put their faith and trust in you as Lord and Savior. And then, Father, for, the, for those that make up the rest of us, those of us that have claimed you for some time, I pray that you just encourage our hearts this morning. That you have not given up on us. You have not quit on us. We look at all that we should be and, and realize how much of that we're not. But we should not faint. We should not give up. We should not become fatalistic. We should not just give in and, and, not, and, and not try anymore. Father, we need to see you high and lifted up. We need to see your beauty. We need to see your greatness. Bring us back to those moments of meditation. Bring us back to your word and, and, and staying in your word and dwelling in your word until our hearts are just warmed and delighted and, 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 and full of joy, unspeakable. So that we can genuinely arise out of that place and go and do, every, and do what you have commanded us to do. And you'll be with us all the way to the very end. Father, do what only you can do in the hearts of those that are listening. In Christ's name, amen. Let's stand, let's sing one final song this morning.